come on a journey with a cinephile. Welcome to episode three of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I am your host, David Garrett, and I have a little bit lighter episode from the last one, as I only have three reviews that I'm going to have on this episode, as well as a featured review, and that's actually three for my mini-reviews for this week. Um, I do apologize if my voice sounds a little bit different. Definitely went out for a game with some friends yesterday, and I am still feeling the effects of it. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you off to a first musical break, and we will get into the first of my reviews.
first film that I watched for this week would be The Shed from 2019. This is listed as a drama horror. The writer and director is Frank Sabatella, and this is starring J.J. Warren, Cody Castro, and Sofia Heponen. And this is currently rated, at the time of recording this, a 3.9 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis here is Stan, who um, is played by Warren, lives with an abusive grandfather and tries to protect his best friend from bullies. Things take a darker turn when he discovers a creature living in the tool shed behind his grandfather's house. Now, I actually caught this at the Gateway Theater. It was playing, and I decided to randomly just check it out uh, without really knowing anything about it. I just knew that it was from 2019, and it sufficed for my... Um, challenge that I'm trying to do for new horror movies this year when now we really have a really cool cold open here we have Bane played by Frank Whaley is hunting something in the woods and we actually see it in behind him being stalked by a creature and I have to say that the look of this creature was really cool it is actually played by Damien Norfleet, and I really dug this because this is actually a vampire movie, and the vampires look very similar to like a Kurt Barlow or a Count Orlock, and because they actually have glowing eyes and a mouthful of fangs, and actually what ends up happening is that he bites Bane's neck, but then immediately after is hit by sunlight, and which kills him. And we actually see that Bane now has to avoid being touched by the light as he has been turned into a vampire. And he ends up coming to the edge of the woods where he sees a tool shed and he actually grabs a piece of canvas nearby from a pile of wood to try to use it to get inside of this tool shed before he is also killed. And then from here is where the movie starts to kind of fall apart for me. We first start off getting a dream sequence of what I'm assuming life was like for Stan before everything kind of fell apart around him. And then he actually wakes up to the reality that he actually lives in, where he lives with his grandfather, um, Ellis, played by Timothy Bottoms, and he is quite hard on him. We actually learn that Stan was released from a juvenile detention center into the care of Ellis, and Ellis makes sure that he remembers that every chance that he gets. Stan also has to deal with bullies um, from his school. Now, the main one who's in charge is Marble, and he also has two friends, Pitt Nazi, and they are played by Chris Petrovsky, Francisco Burgos, and Uli Schlesinger, accordingly. The sheriff is named Dorney, and she is actually played by Sibahan Fallon Hagen, and her deputy is Heiser, who is Mushaka Benson, and they are also kind of giving Stan some hassling, because it looks like they know he's a troublemaker, so they definitely are keeping their eyes on him. We learn that his 18th birthday is right around the corner while he actually will be you know, treated as an adult. And at school, Stan is also in love with Roxy, who is played by Happenin. And she is actually seeing Marble, or at least they're just fooling around, which is kind of a weird situation there in general as we kind of get to know this character a little bit as it goes on. And then Stan's best friend is Dahmer, played by Cody Castros, and he gets it much worse than than Stan does, as Dahmer doesn't really stand up for himself, and when he does, he just doesn't have that rage that it seems like Stan does to actually kind of fight back and actually kind of get these bullies to kind of back off. And actually the two of them end up skipping out on school from this point. 
Stan actually does finally go home. Ellis demands that he mows the yard. It is now that he actually encounters Bane inside of the tool shed, and in turn, he actually tries to send the dog that they have in there, but it ends up getting murdered. And when Stan goes to tell his grandfather about this, um, Ellis is actually killed as well by Bane. Now, this actually causes Stan to go into a panic. So we actually learned a little bit prior to this that since he was released into Ellis's care, that if Ellis passes away or anything like that, Stan would actually have to go back to Juvie, which he doesn't want to do. So from that point on, I actually kind of made this recap make the movie sound a little bit better than what it actually was because I have to actually admit I was actually pretty bored with what they focus on and I think there is things here that could have made this film much better if they would have kind of shifted the focus that we got. First I would have rather um, kind of learn what sent Stan to Juvie. I'm just assuming that because we don't get that he just after his parents passed away kind of just became a problem child and that's what ended up netting him there. That's just the case. I kind of wish they would have either established that, uh, but actually the other thing would have been to focus more on these vampires because I've kind of already touched on it, but they look really cool. Now, we don't really get much about them outside of the fact of why Bane was out in the woods that day, and I do like the idea that we learn about how to defeat them from Stan watching an old horror movie because that's kind of a cool meta way thing to do there. Now going from that, I've kind of touched on, I think the effects in this film were really good. The acting was a bit mediocre at best, if I'm going to be perfectly honest here. I just didn't connect with the characters, and I kind of feel like they wrote them to be, try to have depth, but I don't think they added depth with what they did. I think they just kind of made them be kind of just shitty characters, and it just didn't work for me. So I can't really say that this is a very good film for me. It just, it never piqued my interest, and I have to say that this, for me, was below average, and my rating for this one is a 4 out of 10. Alrighty, and the next film to talk about will be The Crazies from 1973. This is an action horror thriller from the United States. It is written and directed by George A. Romero, but the original script was actually done by Peter McCullough, and this is starring Lane Carroll. Will McMillan and Harold Wayne Jones, the military attempts to contain a man-made combat virus that causes death and permanent insanity in those infected as it overtakes a small Pennsylvania town. And this is currently sitting at a 6.1 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. Now this is actually the third time I've seen this one, I believe. It really is an intriguing social commentary that I didn't pick up until this last viewing here, but I also kind of think a lot of that was the time that I have watched this previously. Um, I've always dug this one, but I have a deeper appreciation for it now uh, for sure. As the synopsis states, we start with a girl getting ready for bed and then her brother trying to scare her. But things take quite the turn when we realize that her father has lost it and has actually killed their mother before setting their house on fire. Now that's the catalyst to all of the events that we see as we end up meeting Judy and David who are in bed together. He's a volunteer firefighter so he needs to go join up with the other firefighters to take care of the siren that's going and then she's a nurse and the doctor who she works for calls her in to work. Now she drops him off at the fire station where we see his partner Clank as the two of them head out to the fire, the farmhouse from the start of the film. 
Now we see that this is a military operation now, and the doctor wants Judy to flee with antibiotics as she's actually currently pregnant. And we kind of see that the military are going to be a big issue in this small town. Now this is where we get a lot of the social commentary that Romero, I believe, is trying to convey. I think that this is a protest to the Vietnam War. Uh, we get government officials deciding what to do in Evans City from Washington, D.C., and actually the regulations that they are putting forth for the military and the scientists are making everything be quite ineffective and just slowing everything down in general. Now this actually really describes what happened in Vietnam as well as the Korean conflict as they were trying to regulate and use everything through different uh, government decisions instead of just letting the soldiers kind of do what they you know are supposed to do while they're over in active duty now this operation is also rushed and we see dr watt who is set in against his will now he's being sent there because he was actually a major scientist on the project that is codenamed trixie which is actually the name of the virus that was on an airplane that crashed in the area and has infected their water supply he tells him he'd be more effective if he's allowed to go to his lab, but they ignore him ultimately and actually send him in. And it's actually kind of funny because I know him as the guy with the eye patch from Dawn of the Dead as this guy is played by Richard France. And speaking of cameos, we actually get one from the character Artie is played by Richard Liberty, who I know as the actor who he also plays dr frankenstein in day of the dead done by romero and we also see lynn lowry who plays his daughter here and she's been in quite a few horror films that i've that i've seen previously and i actually believe one of them was the remake to cat people um i'd have to look that up but i know i've seen her in other things now i did think that this one goes a little bit heavy-handed in the social commentary which makes it a little bit less effective for me uh that doesn't mean that it's not an enjoyable film though and i mean another thing you can kind of tell that it's a little bit heavy-handed as well is the music is mostly a drum cadence that sounds very military-like now something i actually like for this version as opposed to the remake of it is that you can't tell who's infected and who's still normal because everybody still has their same skin tone and I think that you can only really tell is when they start acting crazy. And I also like that it doesn't make everybody aggressive either. Now, there are some people that are, but it kind of just takes whatever your disposition is and just removes whatever the social norms would be from growing up. So that's kind of a cool thing that I think about this one is that you can't really, like I said, tell who's crazy and who is just kind of acting a little bit out of the norm just by looking at them you kind of have to watch them to get that idea so now with that said i still really dig this version and i mean a lot of it is that george romero is i believe my favorite director so i still have to give this a 7.5 out of 10. Alrighty, the next film i'm going to cover is altered states from 1980. this is a horror sci-fi thriller directed by ken russell written by patty chayefsky who also wrote the novel that this is based off of. Now, this is starring William Hurt, Blair Brown, and Bob Balaban. It is sitting at a 6.9 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is a Harvard scientist conducts experiments on himself with a hallucinatory drug and an isolation chamber that may be causing him to regress genetically. 
Now this is the third time that I've actually seen this one. Um, the first time that I watched it, I really didn't know what I was getting into, as this was my first foray into Ken Russell films. And I watched it again after I decided to start doing movie reviews. And my rating at that point came up. And this last time here, I actually got the chance to see it on 35mm at the Gateway Film Center. Now, this one starts off showing us what they, in the synopsis, call an isolation chamber, which is really just more of a sensory deprivation chamber, actually. And this one actually looks a lot like a old boiler. And inside of it, at this time, we actually see Eddie Jessup, and he's being monitored by Arthur Rosenberg. And what they're actually doing is he's been going into this to kind of see what sort of things will happen to him when he does. And actually, when he comes out of this time around, he was told by Arthur that he was actually crying at one point to the point where he was sobbing as he was speaking about his father's death. And he actually tells Arthur as well that he was hallucinating while inside. And then actually at a party after this, we Arthur is throwing this with his wife, Sylvia. And at this time, they're actually talking to a young lady named Emily. And Eddie shows up, and we actually get a weird, interesting way to introduce him at this point, where he's bathed in white light, where you can't almost see him, which is interesting because later on, after he's kind of went down this whole discovery of trying to figure out if religion is real or not, or if there's more of like an evolutionary explanation to things, he's bathed in darkness, which I almost feel like the film is trying to get across that going down this path of discovery is taking him on a dark path that is not going to end well. And I guess that's a slight spoiler, but if you know that a film is going to have to have some sort of major issue, that's kind of what it's moving towards at this point. Well, anyways, Emily and Eddie end up hitting it off, and he actually awkwardly asks if she would like to sleep with him. He goes home with her. Now, after their encounter is coming to an end, Eddie really starts to kind of delve into his personal life. We realize that he was raised in a house of science where both of his parents were educated and had really prestigious jobs. But we actually learn that Eddie had experienced religious visions as a child where he would see things like Jesus. But this ended when his father lost a prolonged battle with cancer and he gave up religion pretty much altogether and didn't have any more visions from that point. And if you haven't really gathered, Eddie is a weird guy. Emily is quite attractive and she's very much attracted to him, but he actually has more of an insatiable thirst for knowledge and he's out to prove that there is no God and that through evolution we have memories stored in our cells from our originary, I guess, creature that we were at that point. Now, he really is struggling to try to prove this, and he actually thinks that through these isolation chambers and through prolonged use of this, he is able to, what he thinks at least, is that he'll be able to prove this. What ends up happening is that there's a dual nature in the visions that he's having. Now, early on, we actually see that there's an image almost like a Christian Jesus, but she has the head of a multi-eyed goat, which I almost feel like is the devil here. And I think that's where I kind of get the idea that the more he does these things, the more it's leading him down a dark path. And then we end up getting that blasphemous, actually, is what I'm trying to say here. I believe that 
if he keeps doing this, it's going to not end well for him. Now, Eddie takes this even farther, though, when he gets married to Emily, and she decides that for her career path, she's going to go to Africa. Well, he goes to Mexico with a guy named Ichivara, and he's actually going to participate in a study of the certain Native American tribe that's isolated, as they use this ritual where they have mushrooms they brew into a broth, and they end up having very similar out-of-body experiences and hallucinatory visions. Now, he decides that does one of these experiments with these, this tribe, give him some of this broth to take back with him, and he ends up getting the idea to use it in his isolation chamber, and this is where things get really weird. Now, there's some actually guttural sounds we record from him, and there's even moments where once he leaves, his arm is changing, and he has these really weird chest and stomach pains. I almost feel like at this point, you could almost feel like this is, he is just experiencing this, but it's not actually happening to him physically. But as we see things go on, though, we see that this might not necessarily be the case. And what the film is trying to get at here is that inside of our DNA is this hidden aspects of the original creature that we used to be, and that he is able to tap into that, but the problem is that it's slowly taking him over. Now, I do believe that this film goes on a bit too long. This runs about, it uh, runs actually over an hour and 45 minutes, where I feel like there was about 15 minutes or so that could have been cut out that doesn't really add too much value for me that could have just tightened this film up. And I also really wasn't the biggest fan of the ending, and I feel like everything that was built up, they go away from it with how they end up ending this film, and I just wasn't a big fan. I don't mind the overall message it's trying to convey necessarily, just I feel like it's a little bit of a cop-out. Now, not to end this on a down note, though, the acting in this film is amazing. I'm a big fan of Hurt, and I think in this film he does a great job as Eddie. But not to be outdone, though, I think Brown, Balaban, and Charles Haid are all solid in support of him and really help to make his character almost need to realize that he's going too far, but they still can't stop him because they know he's so driven. And it's also actually interesting is that we have a young Drew Barrymore here who plays one of their children as well. Now, the other aspect that I really wanted to cover would be the effects. I think they do a great job with the montage sequences that we get. And this film is just very visually stunning. Now, I thought that when I was watching it on my DVD, but seeing it on 35 Miller made that even better for me. And I also have to say that the soundtrack works well with everything that we're seeing and really helps to add to the tension as well. Now, I think that this had the makings of being a really good film, but I have just some slight issues with it that kind of hurts my rating and brings us down a bit. I do think this is a good film still, but I can't recommend this to everybody because this is definitely an art house film. So if you're not into that type of thing, definitely avoid this. But I come in here with an 8 out of 10. Okay, and now I'm going to kick you over to the trailer for the featured review of Stage Fright.
Maniac is hiding in here. You've gone out of your mind. One, kill her! Kill her! just heard the trailer for my feature review for the night which will be the film stage fright or in its native country of italy uh deliria this comes from 1987 this is directed by michelle suave and it is written under a pseudonym by george eastman and the dialogue was actually written by sheila goldberg and it's starring david brandon barbara Capacetti and Domenzio Fiora and as I've said this comes from Italy and this is a horror thriller it is currently rated as a 6.7 on IMDB and a 3.5 on Letterboxd and the synopsis we have here is a group of stage actors lock themselves into the theater for a rehearsal of their upcoming production unaware an escaped psychopath snuck in with them now this is my uh, last film that will be for Italian Horror Month of this year and this is actually one that I first learned about in Fangoria's Top 300 Horror Films issue and I actually kind of forgot about it until I started listening to podcasts where I heard a couple people bring it up here and there. Some of it was pretty interesting to me because when I saw that Suave was the director uh, that really piqued my interest because I actually remember seeing Cemetery Man back in the 90s when my sister rented it. And at the time I didn't really care for it, but I was too young and it didn't really click with me. And it wasn't until I have got a lot older and have watched it a few times that I really started to appreciate that one. And it actually is a big thing that when I learned that he had worked with some of the greats like Dario Argento and Lumberto Bava that really even made me even more interested in seeing some of the other things that he has done. Now we start this during the rehearsal for a stage play. The star of this is Alicia, uh, played by Capacetti, and she ends up hurting her ankle at some point, and she's trying to hide it because the director of this play is a real jerk, and she is afraid that if she if he finds out about it that she'll lose her spot in the in the show. 
and she's actually friends with Betty, who's played by Yorike Schwerk, and she actually sneaks her out with the help of the manager of this building, uh, Willie. And what she's going to do is sneak her off to a local facility that she believes will be able to either give her some sort of treatment or at least give her something, some sort of like drugs or something to help her kind of mask the pain. The problem is that this place is actually a mental hospital and not really normal doctors there. Now while inside, a former actor who turned homicidal maniac actually kills an orderly and then kind of stages his own little breakout here and ends up hiding in Betty's car. Now he ends up killing Betty here a little bit later on and with a pickaxe actually and Alicia is the one that discovers the body after she had been fired by the director. Now what I actually like about this film is that the police are actually called and they do an investigation around this and actually take the body off and I end up liking this because this allows all of the people inside of the building that are kind of in the grand scheme of this film are non-important people end up going home but the director Peter who's played by Brandon is a real jerk and decides he can take advantage of this situation to kind of help this play that he is putting on and what he ends up doing is changes the killer in his story to Irvin Wilson, who is the or Irvin Wallace, I mean, is the guy who actually did the murders and broke out of the mental hospital. So what he does is he changes the killer to this guy to kind of add some realism there. And he also lies to the press stating that Betty is actually an actress and not just the costume designer, which is her uh, real role with the production. Now, Alicia, who was actually, as I said, fired, is now back on the cast, and Peter has decided that the whole main group of characters are going to stay late to try to get ready for their opening on Saturday. And what he actually does is offers to pay them more cash or more cash right now to actually um, do this rehearsal. And we actually see that the financial backer here is Ferrari, who is played by Piero Vita, and he actually has money inside of a briefcase and starts to write up uh, receipts for how much extra that he's going to pay these people. And Peter actually also has this bright idea at this time to actually lock them in and actually gives the key to another actress, uh, Corinne, and has her hide it. The problem is that Irving is locked in with them and he actually kills Corinne as one of the first few people that he actually picks off and this ends up trapping them all in the building as there's no other way out. Now if you've kind of read any of my reviews or kind of just followed me on any of my social media you know I've dipped into Italian cinema a little bit even as far back as when I was growing up but I mean I'm far from an expert. Now I dig the Giallo films and I was actually surprised to see that this actually wasn't one. That this is actually a slasher film from Italy. And a pretty solid one at that if I'm going to be perfectly honest. I should say though that this is probably the only slasher I've actually seen from Italy. So that's also kind of an impressive little thing as well. Now what sets this apart is that we know who the killer is. He does wear an owl mask, which I'm going to be perfectly honest, confuses me. So if anybody is listening and has an idea or knows why he wears this type of mask, uh, if you could please let me know. Just, I kind of think this is kind of a cool thing, and if there's a cool backstory that I don't know about, I definitely want to get in on that. Um, and I will say I don't hate the choice. It's because it does make it kind of set it differently from like a Jason Voorhees or a Michael Myers. It's just I wonder why the owl was selected. 
and we actually get some really cool deaths in this film one of them is betty gets killed with a pickaxe to the face there's actually a really cool one where uh one of the male actors is actually holding a door closed to protect him and some women that are trapped inside of a dressing room and the killer actually uses a drill through the door to kill him which i thought was really cool we actually have a chainsaw death which is used on a couple different people i am also confused here as to why there's a chainsaw in the workshop because you don't really usually cut use that to cut wood inside like that but one of those things that i'm actually you know just chalking up to movie logic here and it was surprising to see how well uh Solve shot this film this is actually his first feature film which i have to say he did an unreal job with his you know kickoff one i think he goes i think this kind of goes back though to the guys he worked with prior to this you know working with likes i've said previously like argento and bava that he just really was set up for success from the beginning and i actually remember seeing him for the first time in bava's film demons and i never realized it back then but he's the guy with the creepy looking mask in the beginning that ends up being the same mask that you know actually creates the demons in that film now i bring that up for a specific reason as well here which is that I feel like the soundtrack in this is definitely very similar to the one that we get in Demons. I will say though that the only difference there is that I feel like they got some bigger name like kind of hair metal-ish bands back then. But the sound is still very familiar. And I also believe that this is also due in part to one of the guys that worked the composing for this film actually had worked with a lot of really popular Italian horror films like I believe he actually had worked with uh, Argento on Tenebrae and the name that of that guy is actually is Simon Boswell which makes sense because Sove was actually the assistant director on that film as well. What I also found really interesting about this one is that it is written by George Eastman, which is an actor that I really haven't delved into any of his films as of yet, but I do know his name came up a lot when I listened to podcasts about Italian cinema, especially a lot of films that ended up on the band list and the video nasties, which is pretty interesting that he was actually the writer on this film, and he actually also plays the killer when they're in the mask as an uncredited role with somebody else actually playing him outside of that, which I thought was just kind of a fun fact that I discovered while looking up stuff about this one. Now, there's actually not a lot that I can really um, kind of delve into this film because there's not really any sort of like social commentary. I mean, I do know that there is one of the actresses, her name in the film is Sybil, ends up being pregnant and it actually is revealed that she had a, an abortion earlier in her um, life, but her boyfriend, who is actually one of the actors there with them, wants her to kind of keep it this time. I'm assuming that was kind of put in there for a little bit emotional um, attachment to them. But I do think that actually there is a gr good group of characters here that are all kind of distinct. So you know, that's something I'm always kind of looking for in a slasher film is that if I can connect with the characters like that. Um, we get a pretty plausible story. I mean, there are some plot holes. One I didn't really necessarily delve too much in is that they lock the doors, which this film was supposed to be set in the United States from what I gathered. And they definitely would not be able to lock that door while they're doing these things like that. And there'd actually definitely have to be some sort of like fire um, exit or something that they could get out of. So, I mean, again, movie logic, I'm not going to harp too much on little things like that. 
the deaths are really cool. We get some really good practical effects there. Um, like I've kind of already said, the soundtrack worked really well for me. And I actually probably be one that I would not mind trying to see if I can find to add to my collection. It's actually the same that Sauvé didn't do more films because I haven't seen a bad one from him yet. And to be honest, some of them I've actually really, really end up digging a lot. So I thought this was good, especially for a first film. I definitely would give this an 8 out of 10. And I think what I'm going to do now is send us to one last musical break before I end out the show. you for listening to the show as always i am your host david garrett and i'm gonna go ahead and just kind of put an end to all of this here now if you want to follow me on any of my social medias you can read my reviews at reviews of the dead um, i'll have the link in the show notes here on facebook you can find me at david michigan garrett jr on twitter i'm buckeye from mish all one word uh, letterboxd i am david osu on instagram i am david osu 87 i'll have the flip chat um, join code which is journey with a cinephile you can also email me at journey with a cinephile 
at gmail.com. And again, I'll also have the link down in the show notes as well. If you have any feedback or anything like that that you'd like, maybe something that I'm currently doing that you think would be a better way of doing it or anything like that, I definitely appreciate that, you know, good or bad feedback. Um, And also, if you are listening to this on a podcatcher that you can rate or review, if you please go ahead and do that, that would be much appreciated as well. As always, um, I'm glad that you came on this journey with me, and I hope you have a great day. David Garrett Jr. signing off.